The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. She had dreams of being a marine biologist and someday she wanted to make it on Broadway. She was never one to get into trouble. She was very devoted to her family and church. And so when one weekend Katrina started acting irrationally, the alarm bells went off immediately for her parents. Tips also came in from around the nation after Katrina was listed in the National Registry through the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Now I bet you're thinking that your podcast host is having a COVID fever dream and just told you two totally different and awful stories. But here is where our cases intersect. Although Katrina's parents were told by the State Court of Appeals that they had no recourse against the hospital that Katrina walked out of, the case brought attention to a controversial law that gives children 13 or older the right to make their own mental health care decisions. Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This week, I had a heavy hitter case all researched and ready to record, but unfortunately, my family got sick. We are on the mend, but my voice is still a little bit off and I'm battling fatigue, so I decided to put that case on the back burner and work on something important, but with less information. So A, you don't have to listen to this extra nasally voice for an hour, and B, so I can rest up and be ready to bring you that big case for episode number 28. According to my own contact tracing, I did contract COVID from one of my kids. I am vaccinated, but taking care of three little kids, I was super exposed. But they are all better, and I'm on the mend, and my husband should be able to move back in the house from the travel trailer in our driveway next weekend. So, today's case was suggested to me on the upper left corner Facebook page that I will admit sometimes I do neglect just because my Instagram has over a thousand more followers. But there was a conversation I saw in there through people who knew of this case personally. I decided this was the week to cover it. So this week, I'll be telling you about the case of Katrina Nash. But first, let's get our PNW town profile. Olympia, Washington is the capital of the state of Washington and the largest city of Thurston County. It is 60 miles southwest of Seattle, and as of the 2010 census, the population was just over 46,000. And the city borders Lacey to the east and Tumwater to the south. 
When I profiled Olympia in episode 10, I covered the history of the Native Americans and European settlers. So if you are interested in that info, go back and give that a listen. In 1949, the Olympia earthquake damaged many historic buildings beyond repair that had to be demolished. There were also powerful earthquakes in 1965 and 2001 that caused property damage in Olympia, including to the Capitol buildings. Speaking of the Capitol, in December of 2008, an atheist sign was displayed adjacent to the nativity scene at the state Capitol as a part of the Christmas display. This caused widespread media coverage and obviously controversy. The sign was stolen but eventually found and returned to the Capitol. This controversy caused other individuals and groups requesting to display other materials, including a Festivus poll, which, by the way, Seinfeld is now on Netflix, really helped me through quarantine. But in a real downward turn of events, the Westboro Baptist Church, you know, the church that protests at military funerals with horribly offensive signs, well, they requested to display a sign saying, quote, so get this fact straight, you're feeling God's hate, Santa's to blame for the economy's fate, Santa Claus will take you to hell, end quote. So now that we've covered that debacle, let's talk about law enforcement jurisdiction for the Capitol. The grounds are outside the normal jurisdiction of Olympia and Thurston County, so the sheriff and city police do not investigate crime on the Capitol campus. The Washington State Patrol is responsible for law enforcement and investigations on the Capitol grounds, as well as the old Capitol building and adjoining Sylvester Park in downtown Olympia. And here's why I find this interesting. My dad's first assignment after leaving the Washington State Patrol Academy as a trooper was actually at the Capitol for Governor Booth Gardner. And now on to our story. Katrina Nash was born January 23, 1981 in Wenatchee, Washington, to parents David and Dottie Nash, as the youngest of nine children. In 1986, the family moved to Olympia, where she would attend elementary and middle school and head to Timberline High School. Her interests included drama, and she acted with the creative theater experience. She loved music, especially piano, and writing stories and poetry. She was the freshman class secretary, and she was also on the Timberline dance team, so she was clearly a teen with lots of interests and talents. She had dreams of being a marine biologist, and someday she wanted to make it on Broadway. She was never one to get into trouble. She was very devoted to her family and church, and so when one weekend Katrina started acting irrationally, the alarm bells went off immediately for her parents. It started off with the 15-year-old pacing back and forth. She was unable to sleep or even sit still, and then she began running away to her friends' homes without saying a word or having any issues at home. Her parents took her to the doctor for an examination, and the family doctor concluded that Katrina was suffering from manic depression or some other acute psychosis and was unable to care for herself according to court records. The doctor arranged for a mental evaluation at Providence St. Peter Hospital in Olympia as Katrina began to refuse to take her new medication and started acting paranoid, according to her mother, Dottie. Upon arrival at the hospital, Katrina agreed to be evaluated as an outpatient, and according to the hospital's notes, she was acting manic and paranoid, and her status was urgent. Her mother was at her side throughout the whole evaluation, but on June 18, 1996, 
Dottie was pulled out of the room to speak privately down the hall about Katrina's status. Dottie told the person she preferred to stay in the room, but a nurse promised to monitor Katrina on a video monitor, and Katrina had just managed to fall asleep, even though she was still shaking and shivering. While in the meeting, Katrina left the hospital. No one witnessed her leave, but she was gone, and a thorough search of the hospital did not turn up any answers. About a hundred volunteers, mostly from the Nash's church, arrived to search the surrounding areas of the hospital, a search that continued through the night, and even more volunteers came out the next day to help them. But these searches did not prove fruitful, and Katrina had vanished with no money or identification, leading her parents to believe that somebody may have picked her up and possibly put her in harm's way. The search continued the following days. Police received many reports of someone matching the girl's description, including one at a truck stop in Hawks Prairie in Lacey, and another along the freeway on-ramp near Watershed Park, but the family and police were unsuccessful at finding Katrina. Tips also came in from around the nation after Katrina was listed in the National Registry through the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The days turned into weeks, which turned into months that turned into years. Occasionally on anniversaries of the day she went missing or Katrina's birthday, there would be an article in local newspapers, and she was also listed on many websites, such as the Poly Class Foundation. Her family never gave up, but on Sunday, February 27, 2005, nearly nine years after Katrina vanished, a man who was walking through the northern portion of Watershed Park found a skull and called authorities. On Monday, authorities found leg bones about 40 feet away and more bones on Tuesday in the same vicinity near an I-5 access ramp, which happened to be the same location that the police had been notified of a possible sighting just after the disappearance in 1996. Watershed Park is located about five miles from the hospital where she had last been seen. By Thursday, the dental records were matched to Katrina. An anthropologist was called to help to look for signs of injury from blunt force trauma or sharp objects to help determine if foul play was involved. Though authorities acknowledged from the jump that there are a lot of causes of death that can't be determined by skeletal remains alone. But on March 3, 2005, investigators announced that there was no sign of shooting, stabbing, beating, or injury. So there was no sign of trauma. And there was also no pathology noted in the bones as far as diseases either, leaving the cause of death to be labeled as unknown. Police continued their investigation, though not super optimistic that they would be able to recover new evidence or witnesses. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. If you are in the market for a new vehicle, you have to reach out to Shelly at Stuart Subaru, located in central Washington. Shelly is not your traditional car salesperson. She is a trade-up specialist and an award-winning sales consultant. She is the absolute best in the business and has been for over two years. If you are in the market for a Subaru, because let's be honest, who in the PNW isn't? You can feel confident in purchasing a Subaru with their accolades like four-time best overall brand according to Kelly Blue Book, including in the year 2021. The highest possible safety rating in all 2021 models from IIHS, and Subaru was the first automotive plant in the U.S. to achieve zero landfill status. 
where 100% of their waste is either recycled or turned into electricity. If you are in the market for a new Subaru and don't want to deal with the typical car sales situation, hashtag ask for Shelly at Stuart Subaru by calling 435-513-6679. You can also find her on Instagram by her handle at Shelly Subaru. That's Shelly spelled S-H-E-L-L-Y Subaru. I will link both her Insta and phone number in my show notes. And don't forget to ask for Shelly at Stuart Subaru, located at 506 West Fruitvale Boulevard in Yakima, Washington. And now back to the story. Fast forward to 2013, and I'm going to change the subject for a minute on you. So hang with me here, and I promise this will come together and make sense in a minute. On the morning of July 8, 2013, after an intense fight and divorce looming, 38-year-old Jeremy Creamer loaded his 3-year-old son Broderick into his car, along with a few belongings, and left the Lacey home he shared with his wife Natalia. She had given him an ultimatum that morning, get your life together or else she would be leaving with their son. Jeremy had a long history of being unable to hold down a job to support his family, had $30,000 in debt, and a prescription pill problem. He had overdosed on meth at the age of 17 and struggled with drugs and alcohol from then on. After the ultimatum, Jeremy grabbed his wife's phone, snatched their son, and headed east. Natalia was able to get a hold of a phone and call the police to file a missing person report for her husband and her son, and continued to try and reach Jeremy via phone calls and texts to no avail. But by later in the day, Jeremy and his son had made it to southwestern Montana, where they ran out of gas about five miles from the town of Anaconda. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a trigger warning right now for violence against a child. Skip ahead about 30 seconds here if you don't want to hear it. Okay, Jeremy hit his son over the head with a rock, likely killing him instantly. He then mutilated the boy's body in ways that I will not tell you, but are awful. Kramer then hitchhiked to a gas station in Anaconda where he proceeded to wash the blood off of himself, which was obviously a cause for concern by those at the gas station, and he was arrested in the bathroom during the process of washing the blood off of his clothes. But my question is, who in the heck picked up a bloody hitchhiker? in 2013 or ever just why but anyways the police were obviously alarmed with a blood-covered man but things got way worse when they identified the man and realized he had been reported missing with a child the search for the boy intensified and narrowed when jeremy told both his father and brother in a recorded jail phone call that he had killed his son and left him in a field broderick's little body was discovered the following day he would have turned four just two days after his death. Now, I bet you're thinking that your podcast host is having a COVID fever dream and just told you two totally different and awful stories. But here is where our cases intersect. After questioning Jeremy, he mentioned that he had researched Katrina Nash when asked if they would find anything else incriminating at his home. The Montana detective noted this on the search warrant, resulting in the Washington state authorities to get involved. Although they were not able to find any solid links between Jeremy and Katrina, Jeremy did attend the same church, but it was years after her death. After looking further into this, the police announced they do not believe Jeremy was involved in Katrina's death. But what a weird thing to bring up by someone who is clearly more than capable of doing terrible things and who is from the same area. 
Jeremy pleaded not guilty at first, but eventually pleaded guilty in December of 2013 to deliberate homicide in the case of his son. Prosecutors and Kramer's public defenders reached a plea agreement that included life in prison without the possibility of parole for 30 years. But District Court Judge Lauren Tucker removed any option of parole, saying that the brutality of the crime deserved the harshest punishment possible. The Jeremy Kramer lead was the most promising tip the case had seen in years. With that door being essentially closed, what happened to Katrina Nash is still up in the air. Everything I have read in my research about Katrina's family is that they are absolutely lovely people and were taking every possible step in the right direction to help their daughter, who was in crisis. Like, to be honest, I know a lot of amazing families, and I'm not sure that they would so quickly accept that their child was having mental issues, especially in the 90s, and seek treatment so quickly. Being a great family for Katrina didn't stop after she vanished from the hospital that day. Their fight continued beyond trying to find their daughter, and then trying to find answers about what happened to her. Although Katrina's parents were told by the State Court of Appeals that they had no recourse against the hospital that Katrina walked out of, the case brought attention to a controversial law that gives children 13 or older the right to make their own mental health care decisions. The reason the Nashes had no recourse against the hospital was due to this law, saying that Providence St. Peter Hospital had no duty to keep their daughter safely in the hospital because she had to voluntarily consent and agree to the mental evaluation. And even though she did, she had the right to change her mind. State Representative Mike Carroll took notice and worked on bills to give parents more control over their children. The work continued, and according to the Washington State Health Care Authority, in 2018, the Involuntary Treatment Act, a.k.a. Ricky's Law, took effect, so that if a minor is brought to an evaluation and treatment center or hospital emergency room, the professional person in charge shall evaluate the minor. If it is determined that the minor suffers from mental health issues and is in need of immediate inpatient treatment and the minor is unwilling to consent to treatment, a designated crisis responder can evaluate the minor and commence initial detention proceedings if minor criteria is met. The facility must inform the minor's parent or guardian of the availability of parent-initiated treatment as well. If there are different treatment options, a minor that is 13 or older has a say in which treatment they receive. So that is progress for sure. And Ricky's law, unlike many of the other laws I've talked about on this podcast, actually stems from a happy story. House Bill 1713, Ricky's law, is named after Ricky Garcia, a young man who suffered for years from substance abuse disorders and was hospitalized several times feeling suicidal. When secure detoxification beds were not available, patients like Ricky ended up in emergency rooms or even jail cells, where they did not always receive appropriate care. During his last involuntary hospitalization, he agreed to go into drug treatment and has reportedly been clean and sober for many years. So as a mom of an 11-year-old, I can breathe a bit of a sigh of relief on that one. Katrina's family chose Team Hope, a program of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children as a place for people to honor Katrina's memory. Team Hope was established in 1998 and matches searching families with experienced and trained volunteers who have had or still have a missing child. I think that this was a lovely gesture by a lovely family, and I would like to ask my listeners to donate to Team Hope in honor of Katrina if they feel so inclined and able. 
I will post the link in my show notes and on my website, upperleftpodcast.com, under the Support Victim Causes tab. And that is the case of Katrina Nash. I want to take another minute to remind my listeners about an organization that is near and dear to my heart. NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and they have all kinds of resources for those who are struggling mentally and the people who love and care for them. It's another foundation I try and support when I'm able, and I also have the link to donate there on my site, upperleftpodcast.com, under the Support Victim Causes tab. This week's wine that I paired with my true crime, I'm going to be honest, is something I have not had in a while because COVID. So I'm going to go with what I call Old Faithful, Chateau Saint-Michel Mimi Chardonnay. Sourced from Chardonnay fruit from the vineyards in the Horse Heaven Hills, this lightly oaked Chardonnay is fresh and bright with fruit shining through. And when I have my sense of taste and smell back, I'm coming for you. Cheers and thanks for listening. left corner a pnw true crime podcast if you enjoyed the episode please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend all of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com while you are there check out the support victim causes tab to find the way you can help the victims families or take a peek at my merch you can follow me on instagram at upper left corner pod if you have a case suggestion or a pnw wine recommendation please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com Thank you for your support.